Okay. So anyway, um, Billy invited me, and I, I started thinking of a topic. And gosh, we talked about it back in the summer. Maybe we were talking about plans for the year, and I was thinking about the the uh, election, the upcoming presidential election for some reason. I don't know, probably because it's kind of all-consuming. And I thought the, the phrase engaged Buddhism came to mind. And I thought, well, maybe I'd talk about engaged Buddhism. I don't know. If you read Buddhist uh, magazines and things, it's a phrase you see fairly often, you know. And I think a lot of times uh, there's some confusion as to what that means, or maybe it misleads people a little bit. So um, I'm going to talk about that a little bit, and then I'm going to go off topic, because whenever I start these things, I kind of never know where it's going to go <laughs> until I get into it. So I started uh, thinking about it, and... I was wondering, specifically, I started out with regard to the election cycle, and I thought, what does that mean? Does that mean to be involved in some kind of a partisan way, to pick a party or, or a group or, or a platform that I you know, felt strongly about and try and support that? Or does it mean to, to remain aloof from the process and not um, stir up any, any animosity or conflict? as is so easily done. Um, what does that mean? And then I started thinking about it, and I realized I, I thought there was a problem with the phrase engaged Buddhism altogether. So I started kind of taking it apart. You know, but before I get to that, also another way you, can, you see it very often is people say, you know, they get involved with uh, good works, you know, feeding the homeless or a prison outreach program, or, um, uh, now I can't think of the words, you know, where you, uh, Habitat for Humanity, or all these kinds of things. And they're, they're really good projects. Don't want to detract from that at all. But the question is, so do some people think that engaged Buddhism means that you have to do things like that to be a proper Buddhist? And as I started thinking about that, I thought, well, I think that's a misconception, and I wanted to address that a little bit. And it was also a nice segue for the first talk of the year to a lot of new members about what Buddhism is or isn't. So that, that's kind of the roadmap from where I'm going to meander in this. And I, I hope to speed it up. It won't be too long. So when you look at the word engaged, well, who's engaged or what's engaged with whom or what? You know, typically in the in the usual sense that you see, it's it's being engaged with, out there with something else, and you are engaged in that project. Well, what's where's the Buddhism in that? You know, if you're engaged with some other project, well, hopefully that's guiding your actions. But um, I also think it's more important to look at what should be engaged where, and. Hopefully, it's your compassion that's engaging you, that's driving you, not thinking that, well, I need to do this because I'm a Buddhist and Buddhism says you should do this, you know, but that your practice, your Buddhist practice has caused your, your awareness and your compassion 
to develop to the point where you feel driven to bring benefit. No? <laughs> oh, swishing feet. Okay. I, I thought I thought you were really having a hard time, you know, with the concept, and you were just trying hard not to say something. But okay. Um, feel free to swish your tea, <laughs> um, or to or to ask questions. Um, so I'm going to come back to the engagement in a little bit. And the other part of that is, what is this ism, a Buddhism? You know? Well, hopefully you know what, we know what the root word is, Buddha. So I'll, I'll put that aside for a minute, and we'll come to the ism part. And when you look in the dictionary, um, I like Merriam-Webster, it talks about a distinctive doctrine or a, or a um, cause or a theory, okay? So keep that one in mind. The secondary definition was an oppressive and especially discriminatory attitude or belief, like racism or sexism or one of those kinds of isms. So we're going to put that one aside. Hopefully Buddhism doesn't qualify in that sense. I certainly hope not. But let's go back to the definition that says it's a distinctive doctrine or, or theory and when you look at doctrine, it says a teaching. And that's how we very often hear Buddhism referred to as it's a teaching. So Buddhism is teaching of the Buddha, or if we break apart the word Buddha, teaching of the awakened one. So that makes sense to me. I understand that. Let's, let's follow that along. So what does a teaching do? What is it for? Well, typically it prepares us to do something. We're here in a, in a university, a teaching environment. Hopefully that is preparing you to uh, pursue an interest, um, something that, that you're, you're passionate about and that you want to, to work in that field. Hopefully get paid for it, um, make a living. So a teaching, so ho hopefully something that you're, is preparing you to do something, to take an action. And the next thing to keep in mind about a teaching is that it implies a bit of a contract. If you want to be taught, if you're going to a place to be taught, hopefully your part of that contract is you're willing to accept it and to learn and to maybe challenge it back, and to, but to somehow engage in that teaching, with that teaching, for a process of learning, of enlightenment. So I would say that leads us to Buddhism being something that you do and a practice. And for the, for the newcomers here, for those who, who you know, may have just come out of curiosity, just to uh, cover a few points. You know, when I, when I was in school and writing papers, we used this technique called uh, comparison contrast. You know, and com you compare it to something you know and you contrast it against that. So. Let's look at some of the other possibilities of ways of defining a religion, because Buddhism is often called a religion. This group is called Buddhist philosophies. Is it a religion? Is it a philosophy? Is it a practice? What is it? You know. Well, as with so many of these things, it depends on your definition of the term. You know. Is it um, a religion in the sense of does it deal with metaphysics? You know, all the the supranormal stuff, the deities and, and, and supranormal realms, heavens and hells and souls and afterlifes and things like that. 
and uh, that that category is not really addressed. You know, I had a, I think that was one of the last talks last year was talking about metaphysics. So obviously, over time, those kinds of things grow into the sutras, but in, in the core, when you look at the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, that's really not a part of it. So I would say that that's not Buddhism's um, major emphasis. Is it a set of beliefs or a doctrine or a dogma? Well, not really. In, t in the Judeo-Christian sense of having a, an Apostles' Creed or a catechism or something like that, where you recite, I believe in, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, that's not required. Okay, so it's not a, a belief system like that. Um, and I guess you could probably come up with some other definitions, you know, uh, a definition of a community or things like that. But I'm already probably out of my depth, so I won't go any further there. But I would say that Buddhism is a practice, something that you do. You often hear it referred to as a path, or the way, I, I uh, don't like that one so well because a path typically implies going from A to B. Okay, and then you know you start at A and then you reach B and then you're done, right? Whereas a practice indicates something that that you continue to do over and over again, and we'll come back to that in in just a minute. So. That's my premise, so I'm going to go dig into that a little bit more. So I think, Billy, you said you've already talked about the Four Noble Truths, and you started talking about the Noble Eightfold Path. Okay, all right. So just for the, you know, very, very quick summary, Four Noble Truths are, and this is, you know, paraphrasing, not using one particular solid translation or another, but the, the truth of dukkha, which is often translated as suffering, yeah, a little iffy on that because it has such a negative connotation. I like to save that for the next one. Um, of dissatisfaction, of the, the nature of the fact that when you are born into this phenomenal universe, you are subject to uh, sickness, aging, and death. And that's just unsatisfactory to most, you know. <laughs> we don't like that. And that brings us right into the second noble truth, which is the cause of suffering is our attachment, our desire, our grasping for, for it to be otherwise than that. Okay, and that's where I think the suffering comes in. Um, you know, a saying that I like is that pain is unavoidable, but suffering is optional. Because the pain is what happens to us. You, you step on a, a sharp stone or something and it hurts. But the suffering is what goes on between your ears when you say, oh, why did this happen to me and I was running late and now I'm going to have to limp the rest of the way. And, you know, then you just make it worse. Third noble truth being there, there is an end to suffering. Well, that's great, you know. In the Judeo-Christian metaphor, that's the good news, right? <laughs> um, and then, and I, and I apologize to anybody if I'm being flippant there. I'm trying to, you know, that's our culture. That's what most of us were raised in. So I'm you know, trying to bring in some cultural references. That's what comes to my mind. I, I grew up that way. Um, the fourth noble truth being that the path to achieve the third noble truth is the noble eightfold path, or sometimes it's called the ennobling, changing that adjective to a verb, which I like very much. Um, uh, because, again, the, the focus on action, something that you do. 
And when we look at those eight items, and any one of those could be a topic for, for one talk all by itself. So this is kind of like a warp speed review. So there's three categories. There's the wisdom category, the ethical conduct category, and the uh, concentration category, or samadhi. So the first one, wisdom being right view or understanding and right intention. And you said you've already talked about those two? Okay. So we're not going to go into that any further. That's the first category, wisdom. And then the ethical conduct, well, let me back up and say, so obviously that's, that's view, intention. That's your mindset. That's your understanding. It's not anything you've really done yet, except maybe think about it. But it's your, your mental preparedness. And then the next are the, the, the things that you do, ethical conduct. I'm chuckling because I'm looking at my notes. I have to look at my notes. Somebody was smiling. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's, I never can remember all Buddhism is full of numbers and categories and lists, you know, and it's hard to remember it all. Um, the right uh, conduct, right speech, right conduct, or ethical conduct consists of right speech, right action, right livelihood. Those are the things that you do. And then the last category, the concentration or samadhi category, is right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And those boundaries between those are really kind of vague. Um, and it basically deals with your contemplation practice, your meditation. And when you look at those, it's, it's not a path. It's really a cycle. They all support each other. Okay? And... Let me jump first to a, uh, an analogy that came to mind that maybe is a little bit easier to absorb. I worked for some years, I was telling somebody earlier about my career path, and I, I get bored easily, so I was kind of bouncing all around. And for a while I worked in engineering, in quality engineering, in the aerospace industry. So when you send a probe off to Mars or whatever, you get like one chance to get it right. So the, the quality engineering was very, very important to make sure that it was built right to begin with. And one of the things that, that you talk about a lot in the quality world was the Deming cycle, named after this engineer called Deming. His name was Deming, and uh, he came up with this uh, cycle, PDCA, plan, do, check. A could be analyze or act. I kind of like both. Um, meaning plan, meaning you figure out what you're going to do. You're going to make this thing. And you have a plan for how you're going to make it. You actually do it. And then you check the results. You measure it, you test it, things like that. And then you analyze those results. And then you start over again. Based on your analysis, you go back to, okay, well, next time when we rebuild the next test unit or whatever, we need to, to change the procedure this way or that way a little bit. And then hopefully it's better when you, when you do it the next time and you analyze the results and you go back and do that over and over again. Okay. That makes sense to most of us in, in our technological society full of full of uh, androids and, and iPods and things like that, where they wouldn't work if we didn't have very, very precise manufacturing techniques that have been developed over, these time, over time. But I think that when we look at the Noble Eightfold Path, it's a very similar thing. Okay? The intention, the uh, wisdom category, is basically the plan. Okay? My understanding is this, so I have the intention of following the Eightfold Path. What you do is the, the uh, you know, right uh, speech, right livelihood, and so on, the, your actions in the world, and then your check and analyze is 
the concentration section, the um, meditation. And if you haven't done meditation much, it may be kind of hard to understand that while I'm just sitting here. But when you practice meditation over and over again, and you watch the thoughts come and let them go over and over again, there starts to be the slightest separation between awareness and thought. You don't have to be the thinker, so to speak. You can kind of watch the thinker. And you can see emotions arise and mental formations and concepts arise. And you can see, you can start to see that when I do this, you know, when I, when I focus on, when I think about how somebody cut me off in traffic, my, my heart rate goes up, my, my muscles tense a little bit, you know, my breathing gets shallow. Um, you can start to see your response to external uh, stimuli, okay? And that goes right back to the wisdom. That goes to the understanding portion that says, gee, you know, when I engage in thinking over the things that irritate me, then I just, I just burn myself up, you know, with the adrenaline and anger and all that. And similarly, when I um, engage in ethical actions that reduce my stress levels because I'm not stressed because I did something wrong, you know, you can see how that has the opposite effect, that it has a calming effect. And, and to me, it's very clear that there's a cycle there in the Eightfold Path, which again, I wouldn't call it a path, I would call it the Eightfold Cycle, <laughs> where it just goes back over and over again. And like with the quality engineering, where we have all these very, very precise devices now, you can reach a very precise control of the way you act in the world. Okay, So, I don't know if that makes any sense to you. I hope it does. I think it's um, very clearly spelled out in the Heart Sutra. And for those of you who are new or don't know, a sutra is like a scripture. What? No, fine. I mean, I'm kind of looking for interaction because I'm doing all the talking here, you know. It gets kind of lonely. Yeah? Okay. Cool. Well, it's not a very long sutra, so, you know, maybe you could expand it year by year. Can you explain more of the, the mental gap? Can you explain more of the mental gap that you're describing, awareness and thought? Um, I tell you what, can I do that a little bit afterwards as kind of an appendix? Please don't let me forget. Because I want to kind of reinforce the point here. The um, Heart Sutra is an abbreviation for the Heart of Great Perfect Wisdom Sutra. You know, they want to be very clear. I mean, this is the heart of great, perfect wisdom. Just in case you didn't get that this is important, you know. <laughs> great, perfect, you know. They try and make that very clear. It's only a couple of pages. And the very the first four stanzas, Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, and I'll explain terms. Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, when deeply practicing Prajnaparamita, clearly saw that all five aggregates are empty, and thus relieved all suffering. Okay, so that's probably half of that was Greek to, to many of you, I'm sure. So Avalokiteshvara is a name, a name of a person, or in this case, a, a bodhisattva, an archetype, um, the the bodhisattva of compassion. Okay, so basically that just kind of gives this sutra a credential. Okay, <laughs> big dog said it; it's important. 
Okay. <laughs> this, this is the Cliff Notes version. <laughs> Bodhisattva is um, an, a, an enlightened being who has vowed not to fully enter nirvana and just bliss out, but to, to work towards the uh, state where all sentient beings can achieve the same goal. Okay. When deeply practicing, very, very important there, the verb didn't say you really, really believed something or, you know, anything else. So was practicing, practicing what? Prajna paramita. Prajna means wisdom. Paramita means the perfection. When deeply practicing the perfection of wisdom, okay, clearly saw that all five aggregates are empty. Well, the five aggregates, again, is another one of those Buddhist lists and categories, basically refers to our existence and, and our experiencing, our way of experiencing the phenomenal world in which we live, and thus relieved all suffering, you know, entered nirvana, basically. Probably don't like to use that phrase, but, you know, just, again, to, to convey the message very quickly. So that's the summary here. Valokiteshvara Bodhisattva, while deeply practicing the perfection of wisdom, clearly saw that um, the things that cause our suffering are empty and thus relieved all suffering. So I think that ties in very well to what I was talking about, the cyclic nature of the Eightfold Path, but I can't explain that very well. I'm not very eloquent, so I'm going to rely on somebody else. So... Um, has anybody here heard of Red Pine? He's an absolutely wonderful uh, Buddhist practitioner and uh, Chinese scholar who has done a lot of translations, and not just translation, but analysis and commentary on these sutras. And don't get worried when I pick up a book. I'm only going to read one paragraph. Okay, I promise. So he talks about uh, this line while practicing the deep practice of Prajnaparamita. And he goes into the, the, uh, the underlying Pali and Sanskrit, and I'm not going to try and repeat all that, but he says, the word, he talks about one word that's repeated there, and that the word kara here serves as both a verb and a direct object and means to practice the practice, to walk the walk. In early texts, the Buddha's disciples were distinguished as to whether they were still in training or no longer in need of training, and the Buddhist teachings were referred to as a system of training. Thus, Buddhism is better understood as a skill or an art to be practiced and perfected rather than as information or knowledge to be learned or amassed. So, in case you didn't believe me, I brought my friend Red Pine. <laughs> so, um, that was just to make my point of it's really something that needs to be done. So, why did I go into all that? Well, to circle back to my original topic, engaged Buddhism, that's to my point of, Buddhism is not Buddhism unless you do it, unless you engage it with your life. Okay? Not out, you know, with everybody else, telling everybody else, I'm Buddhist and I believe this and that. No, no. Engaging it in your life, your examination of... I'm sorry, I never turn around and look at you. <laughs> I don't mean to leave you out. Um, the, um, 
and seeing how you respond to it, how you react to it, how you interact with it, and then repeating that cycle of, of applying that wisdom that you've learned through your practice into your daily life, meditating on that, and repeating the cycle again and again and again. And that will naturally lead to development of your awareness of the situation around you, of your compassion, and therefore the actions that you take. Okay? So that's why I spent so much time talking about Buddhism being a practice, because I see that's where the engagement is, is you engage the practice for yourself, with yourself, in your life, which naturally means everything that your life touches, all your people and your, the actions in your life. Um, so to me, it's a tool, it's an expedient means, kind of a, a self-help technique. You know, I think if, if Buddhism were developed today, it wouldn't be in re the religion section of the bookstore, it would be in the self-help section of the bookstore. But being ancient, you know, they didn't have other words for it in those days. It, it, it was a religion, and, then, and then, you, then you start developing all these things like, you know, uh, robes and, and stuff so, that, that go along with religions. But it's meant to be transcended. So this is the last point I'm going to touch on, and I don't know if you had a time budgeted. I'll try and not go too much longer. I'm good? Okay, cool. So, it's meant to be transcended. The name for the, the overarching school of Buddhism to which Soto and, 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 you know, and Rinzai and Theravada and these others belong is Mahayana. It means the greater raft. And a raft is something, and they, they pick this name on purpose, a raft is something when you need to cross a river or a lake or whatever, you get a raft, you take the raft over, but when you're on the other shore, you leave it behind. You don't need it anymore, okay? So it's a toolkit. And I could look for more and more quotes and, and find them about how, you know, when, 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 full, when beings are fully realized, there are no Buddhas, because they just are what they are, and they're fully realized. They don't need categories like Buddhas or, or non-Buddhas. Um, same thing with the path. There's only a path when you need the path. And then once you've realized it, you don't need the path anymore. It can disappear. So, in some ways, uh, it's, a, it's a false construct or a temporary construct. It's meant to be transcended. And, you know, one of the little kitschy ways you could look at that is that, well, if you remove the ism, once you transcend the ism, all that's left is Buddha. You know, that's, that's the goal, you know, to realize our original Buddha nature. So I see the phrase engaged Buddhism as either a redundancy or an oxymoron. If you're not engaged, then it's an oxymoron, you know, if your Buddhism is not engaged. And if it is engaged, then it's redundant. Buddhism, to be true Buddhism, has to be, you have to be engaged with it. So, um, uh, I always like to have some kind of a little twist on the subject, you know. So to me, it makes no sense to say <laughs> engaged Buddhism one way or the other. So, finally, to go back to it, to engage with, with what? To engage with everything, but most importantly, to engage with yourself, to really understand yourself, your responses, your awareness of the world, how you respond to it. That's what the meditation is for, because that's the only way it works. 
That's the only way you continue that cycle. That's the way, only way you increase your, your wisdom and your understanding that this path works. And then, when you do that enough, the path disappears. It just becomes obvious. Um, we just kind of went through the Olympics, and I think that provides a good uh, uh, metaphor. Athletes, you know, the really, really incredible athletes practice the same parts of their event over and over and over and over and over again, individual little pieces of it, so that each one is kind of automatic. And then they learn to put it all together so that when they're, when they're you know, running to do the, the, the pole vault or whatever, if they had to try and think about each step, they would just fall in a heap. You know, you couldn't do it fast enough. It has to be automatic. It has to be instinctive, intuitive. And that's the same thing with, with the Buddhist practice. When you become more and more aware of your own consciousness, your own conceptions, your mental formations, your emotional responses, and things like that, then it's easier for you to see yourself being triggered as, oh yeah, there it is, you know, I've been cut off in traffic, and you know, that's just pushing my button. But then you can decide whether you want to be the irritation, or just be aware of the irritation. And this is coming back to your point a little bit of that, that separation of being aware of what's happening. It doesn't mean that you don't become some cold, emotionless Spock-type character. You know, that's just impossible. We're human. That, that's not going to happen. But you can be more aware of what's happening and you can decide whether you want to be driven by it or how you're going to respond to it. That split second is all you need to give you to say, oh, you know, and you become aware of your body. You know, when you sit in meditation, it's like, oh, you can feel your muscles clench for anger. Anger is such a good one to talk about, you know, because it's so obvious. Um, and you can just see your response, and then that can, that can trigger your awareness to say, yeah, there it is. I'm getting angry. What am I going to do with this? Maybe I'm going to take a breath, calm down, and figure out how to deal with this in a mindful way in accordance with the precepts and, and the Eightfold Path. So you do that over and over again, and the path kind of disappears, which is why the Heart Sutra, part of it also says, one line is, there is no path, no knowledge, and no attainment. It becomes to the point where, like, when your hand enters the flame, you jerk it out so you don't get burnt. You don't think about it. You don't say, gee, that's hot. I can smell burning flesh. I really ought to pull my hand out of here. You know, it's, it's instinctive. You don't have to think about it. There's no path of keeping from burning your hand because it's instinctual. Now, for an infant, infants have to learn these things, hopefully in not a very painful way, you know. Um, and it's the same way with the path. We should practice over and over again until it becomes instinctual in the path disappears. So my wish for, for everyone in this room is that you can eventually transcend the path and, and forget about the path because it's just so blindingly obvious. It's time for me to stop talking. Are there any questions? Yes? Wow. I literally had to replace that name with the word Susan to understand it because it like wasn't making sense.
Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to take that question and I'm going to make it even more complicated. Because depending on where you read that sutra, whose version it might, the name, that name, Susan, might be Avalokiteshvara, it might be Kuan Yin, it might be Kanzion, it might be Kanon, and it, there's probably one or two others that I've missed. Because the Buddhist tradition um, starts off, in, and I, I never can get this right, um, Sanskrit, which was the verbal-only language, Pali, which was the first written language it was recorded in, and then various traditions went off in various ways, but a lot of source material went to China, then it's in Chinese, and then to Japan, and Japanese, and then some took a turn into Tibet, and there's a lot of good material from Tibetan sources, and so the names alone are very difficult to keep track of. Um, the terminology is very Eastern. A few of us were talking about this beforehand. Um, like when, uh, What a lot of us don't realize is that we grew up in a Judeo-Christian environment, a biblical environment, so a lot of our understanding is based on those kind of metaphors, or our, our metaphors come from those sources. You know? So it's kind of intuitive to us, whether we think about it consciously or not. And when we read Eastern materials, a lot of things that are obvious to, to Asians are not obvious to Westerners, and we don't understand that metaphor. So I was talking about, that's why, that's why you take a sutra that's only two, three typewritten pages, and you have a book like this, to try and understand it. Because he had one line, literally one line of the sutra with like four or five pages of footnotes and commentary and explanation. And I don't mean to put you off, um, but I would say if you want to do some reading, don't dive into the deep end necessarily. If you want to read the sutras, I would recommend, somebody like Red Pine is very academic. I think it's very well done and very well thought out, but it can be very tough slogging. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh has done a lot of commentaries on the sutras, and his commentary on the Heart Sutra is much more accessible, much more easily understand understandable. It may not be the best one for, say, an academic study, but that's not what you're trying to do in the beginning. So, and I, I, I didn't bring his with me, but I have one. Oh, I have, like, Thich Nhat Hanh's commentary on a different sutra, you can see it's a much smaller book, <laughs> and the it's much easier to read through. Yes, he's a wonderful teacher. Um, it's not my, I think this question came up with something you were asking me if I knew a, a different a Theravadan teacher. I My particular tradition is Soto Zen. I'm not absolutely bound to that. I have a tremendous amount of respect for a great many other teachers, and you, and you can kind of find who speaks to you. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh uh, speaks to me wonderfully and did for many years. I've, I've done a lot of study, and, and so I can pick up something like this and kind of make my way through it. Um, but there's a lot of things that I read. I have, uh, for example, um, in, the, in the Zen tradition, Dogen, 13th century uh, Zen master Dogen is, a, is probably the literary giant of that tradition. Uh, his essays are collected in a volume called the Shobo Genzo. I have two versions of the Shobo Genzo. One's like my study version, 
it's got tons and tons of footnotes and references, and it's, it's really well translated for studying. It's not so much fun to read. And I have the Tanahashi translation that doesn't have all the footnotes or anything, but it's more poetic. It's nicer to read to get the feel. And so it's, uh, it's a practice. You know, I, I read them over and over again in different translations, and after a while it starts to, to come together. And I was telling somebody earlier, I said, whenever somebody tells me they're, they're starting to read a, bo a Buddhist book or a book about Buddhism, I kind of cringe. Because if it's one of the really heavy ones, you may never pick up another one again. <laughs> if it's one by Thich Nhat Hanh or something like that, you know, you're much more likely to say, oh, this, this kind of makes some sense, and, uh, and keep going. So ask, ask you know, people who, and other, in the group and, uh, for references and recommendations. Does that help? We actually have a list on our website. We, we haven't updated it in a bit, but we have like 10 or 15 really good beginner books. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. did, did I address your question well enough? Sure. Okay. Um, I had another question, though. You only get one. Oh. <laughs> Let everybody else have one first. No, go ahead. If nobody else has a question, go Does ahead. Does anybody else have a question? Okay. Right. My question is, I'm really questioning whether I understand what is usually described when people talk about religion. Mm -hmm. um, most Buddhists or practicing Buddhists that I talk to you know, agree, seem to agree that they don't want to say they're a religion, they're just a practice. But I think that's an identical saying that any other religion would have. Like, they wouldn't say that it's a religion, it's like a following of, of some figure, like Jesus. Like, mm -hmm. I just don't think it's a, I would debate that argument, because mm -hmm. fundamentally religion is bound by certain rituals, certain doctrines, teachings. Um, and I, I guess maybe, the Judeo-Christian faiths seem to be more of a religion to our group, particularly, is that their, their congregations are built around, like, recitation? Uh, recitation? Yeah, just essentially repeating one after another and, like, singing songs in a certain way. While it's more structured, I think it's fundamentally, like, the same in the way people interpret religion or uh, what it means to them. I hope I didn't, I didn't mean to make the case that it, it is or is not, or that you need to define a religion this way or that way. I wanted to just hopefully break open some boxes and say, you know, let's think outside the box and, and you know, you can decide for yourself. If religion is a way to live your life with it, you know, that gives it more meaning um, and greater satisfaction, then I would say absolutely, it's religion. If religion is defined as something that deals with uh, theology and cosmology and all the ologies, I would say, no, it's not. You know, but then that's that would be my definition. Um, I was just trying to, to give you my look at how it's, how it can be meaningful. I guess that's my, for me, it's got to be, it's a religion if it's meaningful in your life. And I was trying to say, you know, if it's a, um, if it's another 
philosophy to study, like who was mentioning Kant and Hegel and all the others, you know, then, then that's one in your collection and it's an interesting intellectual exercise and that, that's cool. But it's not a religion. You know, religion's when you engage it. <laughs> I didn't really intend to, but yeah. And it has a transformational uh, impact on you. And other religions. Oh, was I not? Oh, no, no, no. no I'm saying that's how I would define religion. So in that case, it would be a religion. But the question is, how do other people define it? So, yeah, I'm flexible. I'll go back either way on that, depending on how you define the term. Yeah, we have a lot of people. Well, we don't have a lot of people now, but we've had plenty of people who do identify as a religion mm -hmm. in like our clubs, and then plenty of people who think of it as philosophy, and then plenty of people who aren't involved at all. They just And can I, I always, you know, feel a little twinge of guilt when I say something like that in this group because I don't mean to be picking on the name of the group. I think it's, yeah. you know. We actually talk about the name of our group all the time. Yeah. Like, we yeah. want to change it. Yeah. <laughs> but we want to just call it, like, the business group or something. Yeah. I think it's very valuable as a philosophy, just as the other philosophies are in terms of stimulating thought, challenging assumptions and things like that. You know, if that's what, if that's what this group or Buddhism does for you, then that's great, too. You know, so um, so yeah, I don't I don't find fault with the name, or maybe I would say it's a practice-based religion. I'm serious because I'll give you an example. I'll give well, you an Christians pray in the same way. Like I mean, it's it's mm -hmm. a different mental mm -hmm. way of doing it. Well, I have to. Like, I, it's yeah. It's kind of the same practice, practice, practice. There's, yeah. There's a lot of. I have to be careful because I can't speak with authority for them. You know, obviously I don't get it, so to speak. But it is, uh, I mean, that's why you have the Apostles' Creed, the affirmation of faith. It's kind of uh, one of the core aspects of their religion, belief, faith, practice, whatever you want to call it. So I was trying to highlight that difference. Um, yeah, but I, 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 I don't want to, there's a phrase... A very common saying, I think Billy was talking about earlier, fingers pointing at the moon. In the Buddhist tradition, and Zen in particular, there's a mistrust of labels and words because you can easily get wrapped up in just what we're doing here, spending so much time talking about the label, you know, so much time focusing on the finger that we're forgetting that it doesn't represent the real moon. Okay, so that's why so much of Zen, so many of those weird stories, are about breaking labels, breaking concepts to go more towards direct experience. So we don't spend so much time, you know, getting wrapped around the axle for something that's kind of an incidental, I don't mean to be picking on you, but, you know, um, but that, that's exactly it. You know, you don't want to be, you don't want to be bogged down in some kind of a discussion, kind of like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin or something, you know, it's not really, <laughs> not really relevant. Any other questions? No? Yes? Um, speaking of spinning dead souls, do you think that animals can do anything? Absolutely. Right. Uh, <laughs> I can put on my head and just walk away. <laughs> um, you know, that's... Oh, sorry. 
There's one. Of, there's a famous koan. Can, oh. Um, oh, I was just going to say that um, I think that evolution can drive uh, animals away from good in nature because there's this one type of animal where if they don't fight with each other and break their um, tusks off, it'll grow into their brain, some kind of pig. So, like, they have to have anger or else they'll die. So, you know, so that's why I think... Um, <laughs> well, let me... Let me go back to Kurt. I remember uh, question. You know, that's a famous koan. Does a dog have Buddha nature? And for those, oh, I'm sorry, I was over wrong. Gosh, I did get it wrong. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I should just not even try with names, and, and I got the faces wrong. But um, that's a famous koan. And for for those of you who don't know yet, a koan is one of those kind of nonsensical riddles, and they're nonsensical because they're meant to break analytical thinking. So, and there's no right answer. It depends on your teacher. So, you know, I can find either answer right or either answer wrong. If you were to say, you know, a dog does not have Buddha nature, I would say, well, who are you to exclude a dog from the possibility of full realization and full awakening, you know, of being a part of, of this universe? And then you say, oh, I was wrong. A dog has Buddha nature. Well, then I could say, well, no, you don't get it because there's still a separation there between subject and object. How can this have that when Buddha nature is a full realization of everything with everything? You know, uh, it's meant to stimulate a deep pondering to the point where you just you kind of break past the analytical mode to the, the realization of the nature of Buddha nature. And that's it's way too short to do it justice, and especially for a newcomer's group, you know. <laughs> Probably sounds weird, but um, the question about that is more about understanding Buddha nature than about dogs or animals. Does that help? I, I want to paint a picture, a funny picture that I just had. Um, is everyone familiar with Pavlov, the experiment yes. with dogs, mm -hmm. and how they salivate with, when they hear a bell? What if you what if you hit a like a one of the Buddhist bells and like <laughs> program them to meditate? Well, is it so you know a lot of times you start with a joke? I didn't start with a joke, but I'll end with a joke. I wish it was a joke. It's a real story. So, when you meditate, you have these gentle bells, you know. Well, it's too light, but, you know, like that. So, when you go to a, a, a real zendo, a real monastery, all the, all the signaling is nonverbal. To, to not break the quiet, you know, some gentle bells, you know, clacking of wooden clackers, things like that. Different bells signal different things. And so the timekeeper is called the doan, and he's like the Zen drummer, because he's got you know various bells and clackers and things around. And in front is the uh, is it the kangze? I forget the name. It's this huge, like soup pot for the village, big thing. And so one time uh, they asked me to be doan without having any training. Uh, how hard is it to you know? I can keep time and I can. Hit the bells and things. So at the end of the meditation se session, we signal it by ringing the big one, the big deep, you know, bong. And I thought, 
big bell, big whack, <laughs> right? So everybody's quiet. <laughs> I think it was like, you know, 40-minute uh, session. Everybody's really, really calm. I'm looking. It's time, and I pick up the thing, and I give it a mighty whack. <laughs> These people jumped out of their cushions, you know. <laughs> So that's, that's my funny story to end with. So I gave them a, a sharp, penetrating, you know. <laughs> they, were, they were very much in the present moment. And the present moment was about training me not to do that again. <laughs> so thank you for your time and attention.